Welcome to the latest episode of our podcast series for financial advisors. Today's episode is Third Gen UBS Breakaway Find Sanctuary, 150 million in assets and a long runway to grow. It's a conversation with Tom Statham, managing partner of Fiel Capital. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. If you're not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe right on your favorite podcast platform or on the episode page on our website. For Apple Podcast users, I'd be grateful if you'd give the show a review. Your input helps us to make the series better and alert other advisors like you who may find the content to be relevant. And while you're at it, if you know others who are considering change or are simply looking to learn more about the industry landscape, please feel free to share this episode or the series widely. In the spring of 2020, most advisors were in over their heads trying to figure out how they were going to manage clients in a world locked down by the pandemic. Tom Statham was managing about $150 million in assets at UBS at the time. And while he was juggling the same upheaval that others were, it was also a big wake-up call for him. That is, the wealth management world was going through an evolution like no other. And the thoughts he had already been entertaining about how his business needed to change grew stronger. So much so that Tom dove headfirst into due diligence at a time when everything was virtual. And by August, he and his team launched Fiel Capital with platform provider Sanctuary Wealth. Tom is a third-generation financial advisor. His grandfather started the business some 60 years earlier at what was then Piper Jaffrey. In 1992, Roger Statham, Tom's father, joined the family business and later became the successor. And Tom jumped on board right out of college in 2013. Just two short years later, Tom's dad signed on to UBS's Retire in Place program, what at the time was the precursor to Alpha, with Tom in line to take over the reins. As a young man still fairly new to the business, Tom admits it seemed like the only option at the time, and ultimately he saw the program as a real opportunity for his dad to monetize his life's work, as well as the benefit of taking over the book and building the business. But UBS started to change over time in ways neither of them were happy with, and Tom began to see how the industry landscape was evolving around them, with more exciting options becoming available seemingly every day. Yet they knew that they needed to retain their focus on best serving their clients, regardless of the imperfections at UBS. That is, until the time came when Roger fulfilled the obligations of the retirement agreement. And Tom realized one huge factor in it all. At not even 30 years old at the time, he had a really long runway to take advantage of the greater opportunities that existed beyond the walls of the brokerage firm. So in this episode, Tom shares his story with Lewis, from following in the footsteps of two generations before him and the changes he saw in the family business while at UBS, to how his business life has transformed in independence and ultimately the motivations that were so strong that forged ahead through due diligence and the transition in the height of the pandemic, plus much more. Tom is energetic, 
and positive and shares wisdom well beyond his years with a point of view that both senior and next-gen advisors can learn from. So let's get to it. Tom, thanks so much for being here today. Hey, absolutely. Pleasure to be here, Lewis. It's a, it's a wonderful day and glad to be here. Very good. So let's start from the top. Tell us about yourself and your background. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my name again is Tom Statham. I, I own and run Fiel Capital. I'm a proud husband to my high school sweetheart. I have a lovely little daughter and another coming on the way here in a few weeks. And I'm a third generation financial advisor. So my grandfather started what uh, is now Fiel Capital 60 years ago. We've had just an incredible run. My father took over for my grandfather in 1992, and I came on board to UBS in 2013, straight out of college, and uh, signed the deal with my father uh, in 2015 to to buy him out, and, and we founded Fiel a little over a year ago now. Congratulations on the upcoming birth of your of your next kid, and and on your your new business. So let's talk back to UBS. Tell us about your business while you're at the firm. Describe your team, your clients, and how much in assets were you managing? Uh, yep. So to start, we were managing uh, about $150 million at UBS. And if you were to pin uh, me down and say, you know, really, who are we? Uh, we would consider ourselves just the next gen. So, you know, we represent, I'm 31 right now. Uh, I came on board again, straight out of college. And our, our team structure at UBS was, you know, rather traditional in terms of, you know, I was a managing partner. I had a, a wealth strategy associate, uh, one of my dear friends and colleagues, Dan, and we split another CSA at UBS. But in terms of who we work for, we work with a lot of business owners, and we have some extremely long-standing client relationships. We have some fourth-generation clients, but but really on the inside, we were always saying, "Hey, give us the new tech, give us what you got. We want to test it, we want to try it out, we want to leverage these amazing tools that people are creating to to better serve our clients." You mentioned you're the the next generation. Are your end clients mostly next generation as well, or does it more match the types of clients your father and your grandfather had worked with prior? Yeah, that's a good question. We we still work with probably you know fifty five to sixty five year old business owner clients. Those are our ideal clients. Those are the people we're bringing on board. And obviously, we have some younger clients. Uh, but in terms of next gen, when I really think about that, it's really how we work and how we're setting ourselves up today. You know, for the millennial clients, when they do own businesses, when they do sell them. You know, we're in line to help them exit well and then manage the liquid post-sale. And I want to get to the Alpha program, which is UBS's succession planning program in a second. But before that, just a question about the transfer of responsibilities from your father to you as the next generation and what clients thought as your father phased out of the business and you were now the man in charge. And this is still at, at UBS. Yeah. How did that transition from G1 to G2 go? Any sort of friction or issues with that transfer? Yes, our transition happened pretty organically. And one thing that I really appreciate about how my father and I's deal went is it was quick. So I was only working with my dad for two years. Um, I was young and he was old, you know, compared to other teams around the country. So our transition happened pretty organically where I just started picking up the phone and just really taking the responsibility because I knew I was on a short timeline and I had to get this done well. I had to treat our clients well. I had to earn their trust. So our transition was pretty organic. And then once we signed our deal and once my dad really started phasing out, there was, of course, a few clients that they just explicitly said, we work with your dad and 
not you. And, and that was that. But by and large, the vast majority of our clients stayed on board at UBS when my father transitioned out. Got it. And then how did the the Alpha program, which would be the industry equivalent to Merrill CTP or Morgan Stanley's FAP or Wells Fargo Summit program, how did it specifically work? Like how many years was the buyout and how did you and your dad think about it? Yeah, definitely. So for, for us, it was particularly for my dad, it was a great deal for him. So in 2015, this is when we really restarted and we were unique where we actually could choose between UBS's old program and their new program. And there wasn't any sort of difference for me. And it just worked out better for my dad to sign the old agreement versus the what is now known as the alpha agreement. So really, the structure was, I mean, these are long term. It, it took us probably seven years, you know, from talking about it and ideation to actually, you know, air quotes here, owning the practice at UBS. So we signed our deal. And he had a couple year window where he was definitely slowing down, but had had a few relationships he was managing. And then once, you know, once the the two year window hit on uh, June 30th for him a few years back, uh, he was done. And then I had another three years of an earnout uh, in order to accomplish my end of the deal. You mentioned already that you thought it was a good deal for your dad at the time. And now in hindsight, do you think it was a good deal for you as the next generation? Yeah. So that's where the rubber meets the road here, right? So you know, to, to rewind just a little bit. So when my dad took over my grandpa's practice, he basically just got a hundred accounts and was, that was the transition. It was a nine month transition uh, for my grandfather. My dad. So our deal was, uh, there's a lot more structure in a lot involved, a lot more legalese involved. And I felt like I didn't really have any choice. So that, that's an interesting component here where I think our deal differs from, I think what we're seeing in the marketplace today, where I didn't feel like I had a lot of choice. It was, you know, you, you, you want this, you just got to sign it. And I think the further I got along in the deal and the further the industry progressed and, you know, UBS uh, protocol a few years back, you know, that was a big deal to me in my mind. And as time got on, you know, I, I think I understood more of you know, what the deal actually meant for me. So I'm incredibly grateful for my opportunity, um, but also the, the more you work, the more you know, and the more I realize that, hey, this thing, uh, there's some ramifications here if I do things wrong. Right. In hindsight, that doesn't seem like you had really any other option. If you wanted to take over the book and you wanted to have uh, let your dad have his exit plan, then it, you really didn't have any option. When When you see things like, or when you saw things like UBS pulling out a protocol, or they announce a compensation plan change, or whatever the, the issue might be, but you're still under this agreement, did your thinking around like, okay, should I have done this? Did did it change? Because at that point, you're kind of locked in. It, it really didn't change. But I think what it did change for me was, all right, what's the ultimate exit plan here? So I, I'm so young. I'm, I'm still so young. I'm, I'm, I'm only I'm 31. And, you know, I've always had this very long horizon, this long view of what we're doing here. So as these changes were happening, you know, yearly, uh, I would just talk to Dan and say, all right. Here's just what happened and what are we going to do? How are we going to best position our clients and ourselves, you know, with this given change? So really what those small chips away, I guess, is, is what you want to call it. We just said, hey, we can't do anything about it. But what we can control is what are we doing for our clients? How are we managing our practice? What are we engineering to hopefully make it easy to one day transfer our clients out uh, to a new firm, which we've done. But that's really how we handled it is, all right, that happened. We can't do anything about it. This is a huge corporation, you know, but we can control what we can control. And that's what we did. 
Yeah, I agree with you. So you had a perfect segue into the next question, which is just about the reasons why you left UBS in the first place. What was the buildup of events or frustrations that led to your ultimate moment of saying, you know what, we're going to leave, then ultimately pulling the parachute back in 2020 to make the transition? Yeah, absolutely. I get this question a lot. This has been in motion for a really long time, not necessarily actually in motion, but you know, in my mind and, and really in my heart for, for a long time. So uh, when I got into the industry within a couple of years, you know, back in 2013, when I came, the bull market was roaring. We had an absolute enormous amount of wholesalers come into our office. And I would always talk to these people, hey, what are other people doing? Where is this industry going from the asset management perspective? And I was fortunate enough uh, at UBS to be you know, flown all over the country and, you know, to, to do training. And I read the news a lot, um, you know, listen to your podcast for a long time now. And I pretty quickly realized that, all right, there's another way to do this. And it sure seems like the ball was moving towards the independent space. And, you know, from a market share perspective, we know that the independent space is the fastest growing area of wealth management. So I knew all of these things and I was locked into UBS, so there really wasn't anything I could do. And I, I definitely didn't want to affect my dad's and mom's retirement because they were you know, relying on this income. So, you know, I knew that, all right, this probably isn't the place for me. I have a 35 year run at this thing. My dad had 25. I have 35 years. There was so much uncertainty working at a large corporation where I just didn't have a lot of control over. And that uncertainty really led me out the door of saying, all right, I think I can build something myself with my team for my clients up here in North Dakota in a way that a big company like UBS are just not going to be able to do. So that was really, I think, the uncertainty and belief in myself and my team that we could build something better outside of a big corporation than inside. Right. It was your extremely long runway that informed your decision. Because it doesn't sound like you were super unhappy. If anything, you're probably relatively well-served. It was more just about being prepared and seeing the handwriting on the wall and saying, hey, if I have 35 years, I have way too much time left to kind of sit by and watch everything unfold. Maybe your answer would have been different if you were only going to work another 10 years. Do you think that's the case? Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Definitely. Before we actually signed our deal, my dad and I, we definitely had conversations with other firms and we just felt like, all right, this is dad, this is yours. I respect that. And if this is what we're going to do, like by and large, this is, this is what we're going to do. But yes, with the uncertainty and the timeline that we have, I felt like it was such a huge opportunity where if I didn't do this at this age, I would probably would have regretted not trying. Yeah, love it. So we had the honor of representing your team in its transition. So I'm personally familiar with your due diligence process, but for the audience, can you walk us through how you thought about due diligence and what it was that you looked at and considered? Yeah, definitely. So at this time, I would have considered myself a rather informed buyer, if, I guess, if you want to say that, and also a frustrated buyer. So, and I also, I knew enough to know that you just work with people who are not in your lane. So you, Lewis, you do this day in and day out. And I knew that I sort of understand the landscape. You know, I, I've listened to all your podcasts. You know, I see the deals on both sides of the fences. And I just knew that I have to talk to somebody who, who does this day in and day out. And particularly in the pandemic, when the market was absolutely crazy, you know, I never considered anybody else. And I just, I, I called you. And then from there, what was really helpful is, you know, I didn't know what I didn't know ultimately. So, you know, speaking with you and really understanding the different uh, 
really understanding, knowing and understanding the different um, places and what I wanted to do. So, so what we were able to do together is, you know, I laid out, all right, this is what I want to do. And this is what I want to build for my clients. And you were, and, and you basically said, all right, here's your options. And then from there, you know, we pretty quickly whittled it down to you know, Schwab and Sanctuary. Yeah. And you mentioned it in part, but I remember getting the call from you. It was, um, I think it was like April of 2020. The world is literally melting down and you had the conviction and the confidence to say, I know this is the right time, even though there's uncertainty. I think it's the right time to seriously consider this. And then ultimately transitioned in August of 2020, which was still a time of great uncertainty. So everyone's heard enough about the pandemic and quarantine and all of that, but you truly were one of the first advisors who did a due diligence process completely virtually and transitioned at a really uncertain time. How did that come into your decision factor? Yeah. So one of the best things about being an advisor and following the markets is we, to some degree, just you get paid to study these amazing companies. And I knew that out of the ashes, big, amazing businesses are going to be built. So seeing, you know, basically buy low, sell high, right? And so I knew that, all right, we're in a low point. The world has structurally changed. And how can I build something out of the ashes of probably the biggest change in the wealth management industry ever. And so I, I knew that this was an opportunity and thankfully there's enough people around me to say, all right, Tom, this is a good idea. This is good for your clients. Let's just go for it. And I gave, you know, you probably remember this. I gave myself a pretty short timeline to make this decision. And ultimately I think I was just a few days late, but we, we made the decision and you know, the rest is history. That's amazing. Do you think it made it more scary to leave during that time? Or were you just so ready and you said such a clear picture of what you wanted that it didn't really matter to you? I would say we definitely left earlier than I thought we would. Uh, you know, when we, if you were to zoom out on the timeline, I thought we probably left maybe a year or two earlier than I would have pre-pandemic. But again, great businesses are built on making bold decisions. And, and I, I was just like, this is our bold decision, Dan. We're going we're gonna to have an ask. This is a scary time. Unfortunately, um, when we left, pretty much all of our clients had been made whole from the losses in March, which is crazy. So I think our timing ended up being not quite perfect, but pretty close to it. Absolutely. You hit on it. Sanctuary Wealth Partners and Charles Schwab is your custodian ultimately won your business. And those are your partners as you went into battle. What was the appeal of these platforms? And let's start with Sanctuary. Why'd you pick them over anyone else versus starting your own RIA completely on your own? What I was looking for was building my own brand. So I wanted to have brand equity in our community in the upper Midwest. And so having control over our branding was really important and having control over our balance sheet as well. So I knew that there were certain shops that just weren't going to be a fit for us. I want to do M&A. I want to build a bigger firm than what we are today. So there was a, a really specific need that we were looking for and Sanctuary pretty much fit the bill directly. And for us, for Charles Schwab, there's really you know two options that we were looking at, Fidelity and Schwab. And we wanted to get away from the publicly traded company from a wealth management firm. So like my firm, I don't want to be connected to any sort of publicly traded company, but from a custodian perspective, we really like that. And we like that Schwab has 
they have scale, they have reach, they have amazing brand equity in and of themselves. You know, everyone knows Schwab and for the most part, people really like them. So Schwab was a pretty easy choice for us. And in terms of doing it on our own, I knew that there's no chance we could do it on our own. So I think I was either, it was either somebody on your podcast or, or I was reading who did it themselves and, and you know, launched their own RA with no support. And it took the, the guy like two years or something. And, you know, I was sitting here wanting to do this sooner than later. And so I needed a team and we needed a team and we needed the expertise to get out and then to operate post-resignation. And so Sanctuary fit the bill for us perfectly. Perfect. This is a question I've been excited to ask you. So a common refrain we hear from advisors is something along the lines of, I don't have enough in assets to go independent. I only have fill in the blank, 50 million, 100 million, 900 million, whatever the advisor is, there's oftentimes a rationalization for why they're seemingly too small to go independent. For you, obviously you looked at some of these mega RA firms or even just some of your peers at UBS with 150 million, it's a great book, don't get me wrong, but certainly not a $500 million or a billion dollar book. How did you think about this? Was this part of your decision-making factor at all or did it not really matter? Yeah, ultimately it didn't really matter for me. I never really thought, do we have enough assets? I understood what we were producing in Fargo here. And I probably understood the math and the economics of these practices, maybe more so than the typical wirehouse counterpart, just because I'd in my mind been trying to you know, build this out for, for years. So I think I understood, all right, what is rent cost? It's so simple. It's, you know, how much does rent cost in downtown Fargo? And you do the math, you're like, oh, okay, this, this will work in the variable in- input cost. So I think you have to know the game you're playing. And I tell this to my owner clients a lot. You have to know the game you're playing and know it well. So for me with 150 million, it's not like, yes, we have 150 million today, but I hope we have a billion in 10 years or, or 15 years. So um, really this is just on a trajectory here. And you know, we just happen to have what we have today and you know, we're gonna build it. So understanding the economics and then just don't write yourself off. Um, I was speaking to another advisor a month and a half ago so he was telling me about his book, similar to mine, and he was just a client generating machine. I mean, his ability to acquire clients was amazing. And I just told the guy, I was like, you're ready for this. Go for it. You have everything that you can do. You're in a great city to do this. You have the skills to do this well. You should absolutely do this. So if I was bigger, I would do the same thing because if I had 500 million AUM, you know, I'd still want to be a billion. So it's about what you're building to your scale. It wasn't a catalyst for you to move when you did. And obviously it didn't impact your decision to leave in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And having that clear vision of what you want to accomplish is so important. And again, we have a clear vision of what we're building and also just the the favorable demographics of our industry. And we know that, all right, the further we stay at UBS, the more deferred comp you have, the more they have you you know, basically lockdown. That's, this isn't unique to necessarily UBS, but we know that the average age of the advisors are 55. And we know the baby boomers are getting older, they're retiring. There's going to be this tidal wave of assets transferring from baby boomers to millennials and Gen X, as well as, you know, there's going to be a ton of retirees building. So we wanted to leave where we're at, knowing that we're just going to lay a foundation and then grow from there. Yeah, love it. So now that you're independent, it's been yeah, just over a year. What are the top three things you can do differently for clients? I will tell you, this is probably the question 
that I'm most excited to answer. These are things that I knew, but I didn't understand. And this is what I tell. I've had the privilege of speaking with a lot of other advisors since we left. And this is always what I tell people. So on your own, when you own a corporation owned by you, all of a sudden you have a balance sheet and that means something in the world. So all these publicly traded companies that we buy or you know managers own for our clients, we can, in a sense, we have a balance sheet. And having a balance sheet and being able to make strategic investments is something that you don't know until you know. And I pretty much remember the time is, is maybe 11 months or so ago when I realized that, oh my gosh, I have a balance sheet. I can do things. I can do things that you could never do at UBS. And just that ability to know that, hey, if we want to do M&A, we want to buy real estate, if we want to make a strategic investment in something, you know, we can do it because we have a balance sheet and banks will look at us differently. And the second thing is hiring. And this is something that is incredibly valuable in the independent space in a way that really the wires or captive environments, you just can't really compete on. We can hire the best talent when we want to. And I think when you look at the trajectory of these firms that, that people like myself are building, we might be growing much faster than a wirehouse, for example. And you know, we can make strategic decisions on hiring when it makes sense for us. When you're W-2, you can't necessarily do that. So the ability to hire great talent and to really hire talent that's custom to your business, it gives you a huge advantage and a huge leg up from other types of captive environments. And finally here, this is hard to explain with words, the ability to create a really custom client experience is something that cannot be overlooked when you're independent. So the example I'm going to give you is our parking situation. So this sounds really stupid, but it really matters. So we have a parking lot in our building. So, so we bought a building in December and we have a parking lot. And at our old place, uh, UBS, we were in a, in, a, in a rather large office building. We had street parking and there was snow in the wintertime when it's, you know, January, never come to Fargo in January, it's freezing. And a lot of our clients have large pickups or large SUVs. So just knowing that my clients can park 15 feet from our door, not get a parking ticket, those things matter. You know, great businesses are built on the margins and being able to have a really customized client experience uh, resonates within people and that's just a silly example of, you know, parking, what the heck, but that actually matters and it matters for who we serve. And that type of customization is something you can't really do unless you have control over the whole client experience. Yeah, I think it's a good example. It sounds trivial, but it's something that matters to your client and you identified what it was and you're building towards it. How about for platforms and products? Any gaps between what you had access to at UBS to now? I would say by and large, the products and platforms have been, I would say better, but it's just, it's a different experience. So there's been some things at UBS that are just not, you know, not quite as good on this side of the fence. Now, on the other side, you know, we have our technology that we by far love more, but I think what I'd want to tell to the audience here and what I found personally is having the option to pick your own tech is something that is hugely valuable. We've seen the venture capital, private equity, these markets are just booming. And there's a lot of fintech being created. I think this year alone, 20% of venture capital money is going into fintech. So for us to be able to, if we want to, bring on a new tool, some new tech to serve our clients better and faster and cheaper, you know, we're absolutely going to leverage that stuff. So having access to technology versus the technology itself, I actually think is the better way to look at it. And that's what I tell people. You have choices here. 
you have far more choices uh, than in the W2 environment, but it leads to much better results because you can really customize what you're trying to accomplish. Right. And how about any downsides of independence? The downsides, if you're not careful, you can become isolated. And we work downtown, we have our own office building, and it's just me and my team. So there's the, I think the downside can be the isolation. Now, I quickly figure that out. And, you know, one of the benefits of being a part of a company like Sanctuary is I'm on the phone with colleagues all over the country. So for me, you know, I'm very much a people person. I've always liked to talk, talk shop, talk business. I've, you know, just connected with rather than, you know, going down the hall and talking to another advisor, you know, I just call up one of my uh, colleagues down in uh, Texas, for example. So that would be the, I think the downside for me was the isolation, but we've remedied that with just rather than walking down the hall, we just pick up the phone. Yeah, that makes sense. And one of the benefits of platform like Sanctuary is that community of advisors. Is that what you're talking about with kind of building that that network of people, even though everyone's running their own business? Yep. Yep. Just being able to call and say, hey, what are you doing? How are you handling some of the, the unique aspects of independence, I think is very valuable because the, the skill set, I think, to run these companies on the independent side, there is definitely a skill and it's much more managerial than, than what we had at UBS. So that's a lot of the conversations I think we have. It isn't so much regarding some sort of you know, investment question or estate or taxation. It's more of related to the newfound skill set that we're all building out running these companies. Right. It's a big transition, not just the transition of the business, but becoming a CEO from being an employee of a firm or a leader of a team. Yeah, totally. And part of the sanctuary model, back to them, is that it's a shared ADV. You're on their RIA, use their broker dealer. Do you find that there's anything that you want to do for clients that you're not able to because ultimately they're controlling the platform? No, not really. We haven't really ran into any sort of issue. If anything, Sanctuary is growing so fast there. They have such an incredible model that they've, they've just had to hire. So we've had you know, some issues of getting things done quickly, but they have themselves responded to their growth problems and you know, have remedied these situations. So we found that we can do anything and it's been extremely refreshing. Talking to compliance is, you know, how can we help you versus the feeling of, you know, and this isn't true, but you know, there's much more of a captive feeling at the wirehouse versus here. So we've been able to do pretty much everything we wanted when we want it, and it's been incredibly refreshing. How about the clients? When you told them you were leaving and it was a non-protocol move, so obviously a it's a different set of conversations than if you're leaving from a protocol firm. Totally. But how did the clients take the news? What were some of their biggest reservations and how did you help them overcome those fears? So the nature in which we moved, it's just predefined by the firm that you worked at. So my move and my team's move was just defined by what we had to do contractually with UBS. And we were in- incredibly happy to honor what our arrangements with UBS. And they were shocked and odd, but really what we told them was my grandfather, his name name was Cliff. He founded the Piper Jaffray office on Broadway here in Fargo in 1961. You know, we were a part of a small organization that was founded in Minneapolis, small. You know, my grandpa knew, he knew all the the, the Piper family, for example. And somehow we ended up at a Swiss multinational. And that's what we told them. And the clients, they, they definitely got it. And obviously, like going into this, we knew that not everyone was going to follow you. 
you know, there will be some holdouts that surprise you and there will be some people that come with you that surprised you. And that was 100% the case with us. There were some surprises to the good and the bad. But by and large, the people we wanted to follow us, they understood what we were doing. They understood that, you know, this entire firm, you know, we're designing it for you, for your family, and you are in the center of everything we do. And that really resonated with people. And we had no problems getting the people we wanted over, over. How much did your choice of custodian play into that? It was probably a bigger deal than we thought initially, but I think we picked our custodian pretty quickly. It was really between Fidelity and Schwab. And again, either one of those, I think, are great choices for us. The custodian, just people knew about it. It It's like, you know, I always tell people, you want your money in the biggest house, the safest house, and Schwab is near the top. They have so many assets. They're massive. And they can make the cybersecurity investments needed to keep money safe. And, and people, that definitely resonated with them. Perfect. And how has your lifestyle or your day-to-day changed since going independent? Do you find you're working more or working differently? It is a completely different work environment. We really trimmed down our client list when we came over here. We pretty dramatically shrunk our book to build a foundation to grow faster. So there's a lot more like you mentioned it, quote unquote, CEO tasks that happen. I think I think about this a lot differently. I think a lot more strategically, just as our team has grown so much, you know, there's a lot more just managing people, but by and large, these are great problems to have. So I would say I'm working definitely more, but the type of work is different. And for me, I'm a very entrepreneurial person just in general, even before I did this at a number of businesses and I just love it. I, I, I just love, love the work. I love the type of work. I still get to do what I did at UBS, but there's a whole other, there's a whole other type of work that I get to do that I just love. Yeah. I think that's one of the most important things with advisors considering independence is you have to know yourself, know what excites you, know what your strengths are, know what your weaknesses are. Because most advisors would sign up for more autonomy, more control and a higher payout. But unless you're really focused and excited about being a business owner and doing the things that you mentioned, there's likely other models that might make the most sense. Yes, yes. I'm with you wholeheartedly on that one. This is not for everyone. I mean, just by the nature of how many business owners as a percentage of the population, I mean, this is definitely not for everyone. But if it is for you, like it is for me, it's incredibly rewarding. Yeah, definitely. So let's talk about your inorganic growth strategy. So growth by acquisition of businesses and recruiting like-minded advisors. What's your pitch to advisors and why would an advisor or a business owner want to fall under your practice? Yeah. So uh, this has been one of the more interesting areas of work that we've been working on. And obviously, Lewis, we've had conversations uh, a number of times on this topic. So just to lay the groundwork is, you know, one of the reasons why we did what we did was we have our own balance sheet and we can do M&A. So for us, that was a very much a, a binary option is if you can't do it, well, we don't want to bring our business to that particular company. So again, Sanctuary, the RAA model, this allows us, gives us the keys to do this. So what we've found, and this is so fascinating, again, something that I didn't really understand is not only are, you know, have we built a firm that clients want to work with us, but we've also built a firm that other people want to work with us. So we haven't done any sort of M&A deal yet, but what we're doing is we're just laying the foundation. Like we, we just got done with a 
a remodel in our building and it's beautiful and we have lots of room to grow. So we're really laying the foundation for inorganic growth and really getting our current business down pat and our processes, brand and material, our business model down so that when we do go out to the marketplace, you know, we have an incredibly attractive offer and a great culture and a great vision for other people that they can see themselves in. And this is something, again, you just can't do unless you have your own brand. So it's something that I'm extremely excited to do our first deal. Again, we're not there yet, but our offer to other advisors is we're young. We see the writing on the wall. We have just as long a horizon as you do. Would you rather do it at Merrill or would you rather build it with us? And we think that there's just going to be a lot of opportunities for people who want to build, uh, you know, fail capital, um, you know, themselves. And that's something that we're really excited about. Yeah. I'd have to ask it. How'd you come up with the name of your company? A little bit of a funny story and my wife is involved. So we're Norwegians up here, right? So if you look at where the Norwegians are in the country, it's Minnesota, North Dakota, and California. And the only reason there's people, Norwegians in California is just because there's a lot of everyone in California. So we wanted to name our firm something that resonates with the clients of the upper Midwest. And so Fjell means mountain in Norwegian. And it's really a nod to the legacy that those who came before us that built North Dakota, that built this great state, it's a really a nod to them. Because some of the people who, you know, the homesteaders back in the 1800s who came to North Dakota, I can't think of tougher, more resilient people. Because winters in North Dakota are no joke. I mean, it can be, you know, negative 30 and blowing 30 miles an hour. And there were people here that sacrificed so much to build the community that we live in today. And we just, we feel that a lot of our clients as well are doing that for their family. So we just wanted to honor the people in our community by naming it something Norwegian and, you know, just a mountain symbolizes just strength and unity. And that's really what we want our business to be. Last question. If you could Monday morning quarterback your transition, aside from the typical answer, which I expect you to say, which I wish I did it sooner. What was a piece of prep work or just a bit of knowledge that you wish you had that would have either made the transition easier or could have helped you avoid some level of frustration? Yeah, I truly feel like we, I wouldn't have done anything, anything different. We did our transition by the book. And I know that we lost some business because of our, uh, of our integrity and our character and in how we transitioned. But that's something that we will always stand pat on. So I don't necessarily have any regrets. You know, our timing where we actually got tripped up, and this is completely out of our control, was, you know, a few of our clients got pretty nervous about the election and didn't want to move over for that reason. But by and large, I don't really have any sort of regrets. And, and when I talk to people about, you know, how they can prep for this just like everyone who told me, you and, and, and the people at Schwab and the sanctuary, just treat your clients right. Just do the right things. Be smart about how you are you know, building your business. Have a vision for your business. And thankfully, we have a vision. We know where we want to go. We know who we want to serve. We know who we want on our team. And now it's just a game of execution. So that's what I tell people, though, is just be organized. You know, do the right things. Get the right things done. And you'll be off to the races. And I have to say that the last year has been, you know, one of the most, it's been one of the hardest years of my life, but it's been so fulfilling. I spent a lot of my life and I think a lot of people do, you know, they live their life for other people. I'm a dad, you know, I get home from work and I spend 
two or three hours with my daughter and I love it, but that's, you know, time spent with her. And, you know, then you put the kids to bed and, you know, you spend time with your spouse. So a lot of our lives are lived for other people. And I told my wife this actually a couple of weeks ago, I said, the last year of my life has been so fulfilling. You know, this has personally been just the, one of the best journeys I've personally ever gone on. And I've been so stressed. I have way more gray hair, but it's been amazing. If you could ask me, Tom, this is where you're going to be a year after you leave. I would have said, absolutely not. There's no way we would be where we're at doing what we're doing. So it's been just the most incredible journey. And I'm incredibly grateful that we have the opportunity to do what we're doing. Thank you so much, Tom. You're genuine and you're heartfelt and it's clear how much conviction you have and what you're doing for clients. So thanks for sharing your, your respect with us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Choosing to move at a time when uncertainty abounded, as Tom put it, was courageous. But as he said, the handwriting was on the wall and he felt waiting would only put his clients in business at a disadvantage. And it seems pretty clear that the time was indeed right after all. I thank you for listening. And I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe to regular updates for the series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the articles link to browse recent topics. These written pieces are an ideal way to stay informed about what's going on in the industry without expending the energy that full-on exploration requires. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 973-476-8578 or my email at mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. And keep in mind that our services are available without cost to the advisor. You can see our website for more information. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with a colleague who might benefit from its content. If you're listening on the Apple Podcast app, I'd be grateful if you gave the show a star rating and a review. That will let other advisors know it's a show worth their time to listen to. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence.